We are studying through the book of Hebrews, and so we will be in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. I invite you to turn there. As you're doing that, I want to take a moment to dismiss our children and our leaders who are involved with Kids Crew to head upstairs for our Kids Crew worship time. They will have a time of worship specifically for them on their level this morning. Of course, we have so many leaders, adults and leaders involved in that. Very thankful for them as well. And one of the neat things is if you were to go upstairs and, and see this in action, it's not just the adults that participate in leadership, but even some of our kids themselves, some of our older children, our fifth and sixth graders, get to step up and be involved in, in different forms of leadership through kids' crew as well. And we love to see that in action, raising up the future generation. Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, we're going to study our way through the entire chapter we pick up with a theme that has consistently been a running theme in the book of Hebrews, the, the idea of Jesus' priesthood. And so as we launch into chapter 8, I want to read all 13 verses together, but as we do this, you'll see again that we visit this theme, this continuing running theme of the priesthood of Jesus. And if you've missed the last few weeks, let me catch you up on what is so significant about the priesthood of Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that the priesthood of Jesus is unlike uh, the earthly priesthood because the earthly priesthood, or what was called the Levitical priesthood, was what existed among the, the sons of Levi, uh, among this particular tribe of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And the Levites, the Levite men, were priests. The Levitical priest served the in, in the, the worship of the people. They served in the, in the tabernacle, and then when the temple was built, they served in the temple. They, they were there to help mediate the feasts and, and the prescribed forms of order that the, the law that spelled out for the children of Israel. There was a very prescribed form of, of order of how they were to worship, and even their lives, their weekly calendar was built around this, and their regular calendar throughout the year was built around this as well. There were seven feasts that were kept, three in the spring, three in the fall, one in the summer and uh, in, in June time, the, the Feast of, of Pentecost as well. And so there were these seven feasts that were kept throughout the year, and the priests had a, had a function and a role not only in, in the feasts, but also in, in mediating between the people and God, all of these things that the Lord had spelled out in the Old Testament. You can read specifically about that in the book of Leviticus in particular, which is actually, you hear me refer to it as the Levitical priesthood, and that doesn't mean that, it's, that it is uh, specifically because of the book of Leviticus. It's, it's because of the, tr the tribe of Levi, but it's spelled out in the book of Leviticus, which is where, of course, that book gets its name as well. What's significant about the priesthood of Jesus is that unlike this priesthood of man, if we can call it that, the priesthood of Jesus was established upon an oath of God, that God chose Jesus, who was of the tribe of Judah, as a son of David and a descendant of David, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and yet God chose him to serve as a priest, we saw last week, in the order of Melchizedek, which is to say that God specially chose Jesus. He served as, an, as a priest, not because of his lineage, not because he was born into a particular tribe, but because he was chosen of God 
to serve in that role. And Jesus' priesthood is greater than the priesthood of any man because the earthly priest needed to offer a sacrifice first for their own sins and then a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his sins because he didn't sin, right? We, we read in 2 Corinthians that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. He, he never sinned, and yet he offered himself as a sacrifice. And so that's what makes the priesthood of Jesus so significant. Jesus mediates this new covenant, and this morning I want to talk specifically about this, this covenant. We're going to really focus on this covenant itself as we study in Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to see that Jesus is a greater priest who, with a greater ministry, mediates a greater covenant that achieves a greater result. And so as our theme through the book of Hebrews is greater than, we see in all of these ways this morning Jesus is a greater priest with a greater ministry, mediating a greater covenant that achieves a greater result. Let's read this together in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on, a, on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and so showed no concern, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each, shall, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so we see, as, as I've mentioned already, we see in this passage that Jesus is a greater priest. He's greater than any earthly priest because his priesthood was specially appointed by God. And that Jesus operates a, a greater ministry. He provides, we would say, a greater ministry to us because the ministry that Jesus provides is, is from from God. It, it, it is out of his own, his own ministry, his own work built on his own promises to us. And so he becomes the mediator of a greater covenant. A covenant not based on, not based on the sacrifices of animals, but based rather on the sacrifice of himself and his own blood we see in Matthew 26. And that ultimately this greater covenant achieves a greater 
result and what we'll study next week in Hebrews chapter 9 in that Jesus offered himself once and for all. That what he did was sealed once and for all through his own sacrifice, through his own blood. And so let's, let's look at these four parts, if you will, this morning. Let's look first at the fact that this passage shows us that Jesus was a greater priest. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point in particular because we've been discussing this for weeks now as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. We, we understand clearly by now that Jesus was a greater priest. And if you have any doubt to that, then I would encourage you, go backward in the book of Hebrews. Read the first seven chapters of the book of, the book of Hebrews. Go online to our website. You can listen to... You can even podcast my messages from, from these past several weeks that have built up to this point, and you can catch up if you've missed any of that along the way. So I don't want to spend a lot of time, but what we see clearly in these first five verses, particularly in chapter five, is that Jesus is a greater priest. And he says in the very first verse, the point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. What does he mean by when he says uh, uh, such a high priest? Well, he, he's pointing backwards, of course, to what he's just been teaching us in chapter 7 and saying that Jesus was a priest who established a covenant that would last forever, that we needed a priest who would establish a perfect covenant that would last forever. And that's exactly what Jesus is for us, he tells us in, in chapter 8. We have such a high priest. His name is Jesus, in other words, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. This picture of Jesus seated at the right hand of majesty is a, is a picture that shows us the authority that Jesus has. The one who would be seated at the right hand of the throne is the one who bears all the authority of the king. And of course, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne, and he's there to make intercession for us, we studied in chapter 7. We understand through the doctrine of the Trinity that Jesus is both seated at the right hand, but he is also... He is also one and the same with God the Father on the throne as well. And, and so essentially what we, what we know to be true is that this same Jesus who was the priest, who was the one who mediated the covenant between us, as God, between us and God, is the same one who came up with the idea. He's the same one who pursued us to have a covenant relationship with us. He's the same one who has offered himself for us. He's the same one who guarantees this covenant through his perfect priesthood we saw in Hebrews chapter 7, he's the same one who will carry it out until its completion. We see ultimately fulfilled with its culmination when Jesus comes again, and we can learn more about that, of course, in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the, at the center, at the heart of this covenant, and it's enacted by his priesthood. Secondly, we see that Jesus has a greater ministry, a greater ministry. Now, when we think of ministry, we think of someone who, who has a, a role or a position like myself, right? We think of a pastor. What does a pastor do? A pastor ministers to people. The job of, of a pastor is to minister to the people. And ministry in that sense is the work that we do in trying to provide the care, the nurture, the love, the instruction of God to people so that may, they might know him. The, the work of ministry is in delivering, in, in helping to shepherd uh, and, and deliver this word of God to people so that they might see it, that they might experience it, that they might understand it. But you know what's interesting is that even though we oftentimes think of, of, of pastors and the role that pastors play in the work of ministry, the New Testament makes it clear that every 
every person who is saved in Christ, every, every member, if you will, in the body of Christ is a minister before God. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks to this. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says specifically that the role of pastors is to equip the body for the works of ministry. And so the works of the job of a pastor is not just to do the ministry, all the ministry falls on the shoulders of the pastors. The job of the pastor, the job of the shepherd, if you will, who shepherds the flock of God, is to equip the body to do works of ministry. And when we understand that God has equipped us, that He has called us, that He has gifted us all, every one of us as believers with spiritual gifts, and He's equipped us for the work of ministry that He's called us to, we, we know that every one of us has a ministry. Every one of us has a call of God on our lives. We've even studied that in the book of Hebrews when we, when we looked at the very first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2, that we should be serving according to the call that God has placed on our lives. And yet what we see here is that Jesus not only served God and accomplished God's call, but it was a greater call, a greater ministry than the earthly priests. Because what Jesus did by God's specific divine appointment was based on his own promises to us. Look at verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. So the ministry of Jesus is greater than the ministry of, of the old covenant, the ministry of the old priests. Why is that? Well, we see in this verse. It's more excellent than the then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So because the covenant that Jesus mediates is better, because the promises that he made and has kept are greater, the ministry that he has to us is greater. What is the ministry that Christ had to us specifically? It's speaking here to his sacrifice for us. The ministry of Jesus, the way that Jesus bridges the gap, if you will, between God and man is that he offered himself on the cross. And the cross of Christ bridges that gap, bridges that distance that exists between us and between God. Jesus has this greater ministry of providing a way for us to be redeemed, providing a way for us to be justified before God. And how does he accomplish that ministry? fulfilling the promises in an even greater way. And so he has a greater ministry that he accomplishes, but not only that, a greater covenant. And this is where I want to spend the majority of our time today, because as we've seen already, Jesus is a greater priest, and we've studied how his ministry is, is greater. And we'll see in, in future weeks, we'll spend more time delving deeper into this idea that it achieves a greater result. But today, I want us to really camp out for a few minutes on this idea of what is the covenant itself, this covenant that Jesus mediates. And, and how is it that this covenant is greater than the old covenant? In order to understand that, we, we need to understand the covenant itself in the Old Testament we see that God reaches out to the people of Israel, beginning with, well, you could say in some ways beginning with Adam and Eve and continuing through Noah as well after the flood, but then most specifically beginning with Abraham. As God calls Abraham 
from Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham was living at that time in Haran, but he was, he was born in Ur of the Chaldees. By the way, the Chaldees, the Chaldeans, were the, the, the ancient predecessors to the Babylonian people. You can read in the early chapters of Genesis of the Tower of Babel and the tower that the people built to try to reach God, the, the way that the people tried to, they tried to achieve the, the very power of God by building a tower to the sky itself, and God destroyed that tower and, and dispersed the people and cast them into great confusion through creating different languages and, and those things. Those people were the Chaldeans. The Tower of Babel was built by the Chaldeans. The, the ancient predecessors to later the Babylonians, because the greatest city of the Chaldeans was the city of Babylon, and Abraham himself was, we, would, we think of Abraham as being a Hebrew, of, of being a Jew, but Abraham was the first. So what was Abraham originally, right? Well, he was from the, the Chaldeans. He was Ur of the Chaldees is where Abraham was from. And so Abraham, God literally called, we could say, a Chaldean, a Babylonian to redeem the sins of the people in order that he might establish a covenant with his people and ultimately redeem them. And that brings even greater significance into the story later when the, it's the Babylonians who captured the people and delivered God's punishment and his, and his divine judgment against them for their sin when you begin to see the story. All right, I'm chasing a rabbit. Back to my main point is just that we see that God works through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through a series of his covenant mediators that God is working to not only to establish, but to keep a covenant with his people. And that ultimately that covenant is most perfectly fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, being written to the Jews, being written to the Hebrew people, of course, connects all of these dots for us to help us see the, the fulfillment of the story that began in ancient times through the person and the work of Jesus. But in order to understand this, we, we need to understand what is a, what is a covenant. First of all, what is, what is a covenant? And so I want us to con- consider it and think of it along this line. So I want to compare and contrast for us a covenant versus a contract. Because most often when we think of a covenant, we think along the lines of a contract. And and a covenant is like a contract in many ways, but there are a few key differences that I want to to highlight for us when we think about this. Probably somewhere on your person right now, or in the very least near you, you have a cell phone, right? And on that cell phone, you've got lots of you got lots of stuff, right? If you, if you were to lose your cell phone, you would be lost. I would be lost. If your cell service goes down, if, if, you, if you aren't able to connect, right, or the network goes down, that sort of thing, then, then we find ourselves lost. Like, what am I to do? What do I do without my phone? But when you got that phone, you, you signed a contract with a cell, pro, cell phone provider, even if even if you're on straight talk or something like that, right, where, where you don't have a contract of sorts, where it's month to month, there's still a contract of sorts, right, that if you don't pay your bill, what are they going to do to your phone? They're going to shut it off, right? I mean, they're going to they're turn off your service. If you, if you don't pay your monthly cell phone bill, they're going to cut service off, and you're not going to have signal anymore. People aren't going to be able to call you. You're not going to be able to text to check all of your social media and those things, right? Because there's a basic relationship that exists between you 
and the, and the provider, whoever you're with, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, whatever it may be, right? There's a basic relationship that exists that says, I will hold up my end of the deal, which is you're going to pay money every month, right? You're going to pay what's an unholy amount of money, it seems like, every month, right, for that service. And on the other end, the, the contract stipulates that they will provide you with this type of coverage in this many places, right? And you'll get this many minutes or this many texts or this much data and so on and so forth, the terms of your contract. There's a basic relationship that exists there, but you don't have a relationship with AT&T, so to speak, right? Now, some of us may have, you, you may have an unhealthy relationship with your cell phone. That may, that may be true, and, and maybe you need to put it down and take a time out. You, know, you need to have a, a break in that relationship. But you don't have an a, a, a relationship with AT&T. You don't have a relationship with Verizon, as it were. They're just the provider of the services that you use as the user, right? But that basic, that basic relationship is seen in terms of a contract. What makes a covenant different is that a covenant is centered around a relationship. In fact, at the very heart of the idea of covenant is relationship. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, the word that is used in the Hebrew language for covenant, the word literally means to cut. That's literally the literal translation of that word for a covenant. It comes from the word meaning to cut. Because the idea in ancient culture was that a covenant was a binding agreement centered around a relationship between two individuals or two, two parties, two entities, we might say. That a covenant was, was a binding agreement that centered upon this relationship that exists. And so in ancient culture, particularly in Hebrew culture, the way that they would seal this covenant, the way that they would, that they would essentially sign off on this covenant is that they would cut an animal in half and that they would separate the two halves, the two parts of that animal, and then the two parties would walk together between the two halves of the animal. Now, that sounds really gruesome and gross to us, but imagine on your wedding day, okay? Imagine on your wedding day as bride and groom, and you're celebrating and all the joy and all of the excitement. And, and, and what we do is, right, is it's like you, you have the ceremony and then it's, you know, you may, you may kiss your bride. I pronounce you husband and wife. You may kiss your bride and they say a little something and they march out the center aisle and, and you know, the wedding march plays and it's big joy and celebration. But imagine if just before they left the altar, we said, okay, now hold on just a second. We've got to bring in the, the, the two halves of the bull, right? And we brought in these two halves of a bull that we've sacrificed, and we lay them out here on the ground. And, okay, now we invite the couple to walk between the two halves of the bull here as a way to seal this covenant relationship between them. That would be gross, first of all. We wouldn't do that. We'd, that but that was what they would do literally in ancient culture, particularly in wedding ceremonies. And the symbol was this. Essentially, it was a way of saying that if we don't keep our end of this bargain, our end of this deal, may this be our fate. May we be cut in half. May we be rendered in two if we don't uphold our part of the covenant relationship. 
What's interesting with the covenant that God seeks with his people, when God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you can read this, that God calls Abraham, and he causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And in this sleep, Abraham has a vision. And in this vision, God is the one who sacrifices the animals. God is the one who separates the animals into two halves. And then God is the one who alone walks between the the halves of the animals, which is symbolically saying to Abraham, Abraham, I have called you. Abraham, I have pursued you. Abraham, I I desire to have a covenant relationship with you. And regardless of whether or not you keep your end of the bargain, in fact, even when you don't keep your end of this relationship, I will remain faithful to you. In a contract relationship, what happens if one end or the other isn't keeping their deal, right? The relationship delivers certain consequences. The the relationship is cut off. If you quit paying your cell phone bill, eventually you would be cut off. If you quit paying your electric bill, if you quit paying your mortgage, if you quit keeping your end of the deal, as it were, in the contract, then there are specific terms spelled out in the nature of the contract itself that says if we don't keep our end, if you don't keep your end, then this is what will happen. But in this covenant relationship between God and His people, God essentially says, when you don't keep your end of the deal, I will remain faithful and true to my covenant promises with you. The covenant is unique because it centers around a relationship, but what's even more unique in the covenant relationship that we have with God is that God is the one who pursues us, God is the one who seeks us, and God is the one ultimately who preserves that relationship. Quickly, let me give you, in in Old Testament, what we see is five different features of a covenant relationship. You can make note of these, and then you can go backward, and you can study the covenants that exist in the Old Testament, and you can find each of these. There are five key features of a covenant relationship. First of all, there's a covenant mediator, and that is the person with whom God makes the covenant. And and this covenant mediator serves a covenant role. So in the Old Testament times, when God establishes a covenant with his people, there would be a covenant mediator. There would be a person who would help to mediate this, this agreement between God and the people. And you can look at the different covenants. Specifically, let's think about the, the covenant with Abraham because we've studied that over the last few weeks in, in great detail. In the, in the covenant with Abraham, who was the mediator of the covenant between God and his people? It was Abraham, wasn't it? Abraham was the covenant mediator. In, of course, in the covenant with Jesus, Jesus himself is the covenant mediator. So there, the first key feature of a covenant, there was a mediator. Secondly, there were blessings promised in the covenant. That if you will walk with me, God says, if you will do these things, if you will honor me, these are the ways that you will be blessed. In the Old Testament covenant with Abraham, what were the blessings that God promised Abraham? He promised that he would become a nation, right? He would be the father of a great nation. He promised Abraham, who at this point, his wife, Sarah, was barren. She was childless. God promised a son. And not only did God promise a son, but he promised that if you will honor me, that I will make you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. That's the promise that God delivers to Abraham. The blessing, if you will, of that 
of that covenant promise was, was that God would make him a nation. God would make them a, a people, and God delivered on that. Third, the third feature of a covenant is that there were conditions of the covenant. In other words, there were conditions that must be met or else there would be curses, there would be consequences if, if these conditions weren't met. Again, in the Old Testament, in the Abrahamic covenant, we see that the conditions were that you must walk with me, you must walk in righteousness. As God calls Abraham, as God speaks to him, you can see in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, that God says to him that you are to walk in righteousness and justice. And if you will do these things, if you will honor me, walk in righteousness and justice, then you will be blessed. And, and this nation that I'm going to establish will be blessed as well. There are conditions to the covenant. The fourth key feature of the covenant is that there was a sign by which the covenant would be celebrated and remembered. Again, with Abraham. The sign of the covenant with Abraham was the sign of circumcision. It was outwardly a symbol of the fact that by faith, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. We read that in Genesis chapter 15. And so because of that, God honors this covenant. He gave, he gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, which was a sign, a symbol of this covenant relationship. And then the fifth, we see the fifth key feature of this covenant relationship is that there is some form that, the, that God's family takes. There's some form that God's people take as a result of this covenant. Of course, again, in the example of Abraham, the, the form that the people of God take is that they become a nation. Through obeying this covenant, they become a nation, a people. You can study in the Old Testament. There is a covenant that God establishes with Abraham, but he continues the covenant by renewing that covenant pledge with Moses. Study in the book of Exodus, particularly in Exodus 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and God renews the covenant relationship. In, later in the Old Testament, we see that God appears again to David and, and renews this covenant relationship through his relationship with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about God's renewal of this covenant relationship with David, whom he appointed as king over the kingdom of Israel. And he promised that he would send an heir, that he would send one who would reign, who would rule forever through the line of David. And so there's this, this unfolding, continuing promise that God establishes with his people. But we understand that ultimately all of that is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. In fact, the point of the Old Testament covenant was to point us to Jesus and his greater covenant. That's what Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, right? Now the point that we are saying is this. That's the way Hebrews chapter 8 begins. Here's the point, is that everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus and what Jesus has done and the greater covenant that we have through Jesus. Consider this covenant with Jesus. Who's the mediator of the covenant with Jesus? Of course, it's Jesus himself, right? God became flesh. God, Emmanuel, the word became flesh and dwelled with us. What are the blessings promised in this covenant with Jesus? The blessing of salvation, of salvation, of redemption, of forgiveness of sin. What are the conditions of the covenant? The conditions of the covenant established with Jesus that's a covenant of faith. The condition is that we must come to him by faith, not through works, not through, not through the things that we've done, not counting in and believing in our own works of righteousness, but rather trusting in Christ by faith. It's the conditions 
of the covenant, that we are to trust in him by faith. What's the sign by which the covenant will be celebrated and remembered? The sign of the covenant literally is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So at the moment of our salvation, God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell with us. Now, we also believe that symbolically, symbolically, we portray that through the work of baptism, which is why baptism is so significant to us as well, because baptism is an outward expression of that inward work of the Holy Spirit that God does through saving us and redeeming us. And so the sign of the covenant that we have, is, of course, is the Holy Spirit, and, and outwardly we express that through our baptism. And then what is the form that God's family takes as a result of this covenant with Him? Well, the New Testament shows us that the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. We are the bride, that Jesus is the bridegroom and that we as his body are the bride. In Ephesians chapter five, as Paul is speaking about marriage, he tells, he speaks and he, and he, he kind of summarizes everything that the, the Bible teaches about marriage and he says in Ephesians 5.32, and I tell you this, that this mystery refers to Christ and the church. And so the form that the body takes, the form that God's people take as a result of this covenant God's, God's called ones, God's children. We become the church, the bride of Christ. Jesus has established a greater covenant than any of the other covenants, than any of the old covenants. Why? Because the, the covenant that we have with Jesus is based on the work of Jesus. It says in verse 6, that it's better since it's enacted on better promises. But then look at what happens as a result of this greater covenant. We read, first of all, we can read in, in Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 10, about this greater covenant. Read these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So he's already told us that he's going to establish a covenant with his people. And then this is the covenant. We keep reading in verse 10 that achieves a greater result. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's, that's pointing us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 in a passage that's known as the Shema, we, we read this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one and you shall honor the, the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and all of your strength. And it goes on to say that we're to take this truth and we're, we're to bind it to our temples, that we're to wrap it around our arms, that we're to paint it on our doorposts, that we're to carry it with us everywhere that we go. And so the priests would do this. The Old Testament priests would wear a, they would wear a little box that was known as a phylactery, and they would have the Ten Commandments printed on a tiny little scroll rolled up, and they would wear this bound around the temples of their head, and they would, and they would wear these straps, these leather straps, that they would bind all the way around their arm. And that would be a reminder to them of this covenant. And they would have tassels at the edges of their garments. And these tassels would make a special sound when they would walk. And everything about the priest's robes was, was intended in some way to remind them of that covenant promise with God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And yet, what do we see here? No longer do we need all of these things, these reminders in the priesthood, because what does God say? I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's a greater covenant. You see that? Greater than what they've ever known. Because God is the one who's done this work internally inside of us through His Holy Spirit. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest. Now this is speaking specifically to God's covenant people, the people of faith, right? It's not just talking about everyone in the world universally, but specifically God's people will know Him because God will dwell with us. He will tabernacle with us in the sense. The tent that it refers to in the earlier verses in chapter 8, the true tent that the Lord set up not by man, is speaking of the fact that God dwells with us by faith. And because God dwells with, dwells with us by faith, we can know him from the least to the greatest. No longer do we need a priest to mediate this covenant because Jesus himself is our priest, mediating the covenant between us and God. So God has done for us something greater than what we could have ever known through the old system because his new covenant, his new system is greater and acted on greater promises, done by a greater priest with a greater ministry, a greater covenant that ultimately achieves a greater result. And what is that result? Is that God now dwells with us, in us, by faith. And so he says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. In other words, we have perfect forgiveness with God because of our faith in Jesus. And that is the point of this covenant. That's what all of Hebrews is pointing us to. That if by faith we would be united with Christ in this covenant relationship, if by faith we would trust in him and believe in these greater promises and trust in this greater ministry, then it will achieve a greater result in our lives. And that God will forgive us Psalms talks about the fact that God would separate us as far as the east is from the west from our sin. See, The greater result that is accomplished through this greater covenant is that we are forgiven and made whole in Jesus, something we could never hope to do ourselves. But Jesus has done that for us. So today, can you point to the evidence in your own life? Can you point backward in your life and say, you know what, I know that there, there was a time, there was a day in my life when I trusted in this promise. I can look back and I can see now the fruit, the evidence of my faith in Christ because I have trusted in Him, because I am believing in this promise, because Jesus is the greater priest who has a greater ministry toward me, mediating this perfect covenant between God and I that achieves this result of my salvation and my forgiveness of sins. Can you point to that in your own heart? Because friend, if you can't, then today, today should be the moment. Today could be the day that you would surrender your life to Christ and by faith, you would receive the fulfillment of this promise. See, God made the, the promise centuries ago. God enacted the promise with his death, burial, and resurrection hundreds of years ago. But even today, by faith, if you would trust in Jesus, 
you can receive the fulfillment of this promise. In fact, I believe that God has been working in your life and everything that has happened is bringing you to this moment, this point of decision, that you might surrender your heart and your life to Jesus and trust him by faith. And in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And if God is speaking to you, if he's calling you into this covenant relationship with him by faith, then today, would you make today, would you let this be the day when by faith you trust in Jesus and receive the fulfillment of that promise? And if you're here today and maybe you've already trusted in Christ by faith, maybe you've already believed in that promise, then this is what you need to be reminded of today. And he says in verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquity. See, it's not that your sin is no longer a big deal. It's just that there was something greater than your sin that's already paid for it. And what God wants you to receive is his mercy, his forgiveness. Not to enable you to go on and continue sinning, but that through experiencing that mercy and that forgiveness, you might, you might abandon those things altogether. You might turn away from those things realizing that they will never satisfy you the way that Jesus can satisfy you. And in speaking of this new covenant, verse 13, he says, he makes the first one obsolete. See, the old covenant has gone away. The idea that somehow we have to work and earn our way, that, that's gone. And now what's happened, it's been replaced by something better, that by faith we can trust in him and we can receive forgiveness through Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you that you have enacted a, a greater covenant through your word.